The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everybody. Well, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll start our time here. Father God, you are good. You are holy. You are righteous. And you are sovereign. And you... In your infinite wisdom, choose to have us in the, the state that our church is in, and the state that our state is in, and our country. You have us in this strange time of world history. But God, you have a purpose, and we trust you. We want to praise and worship you through this time through this odd season. God, I pray that you would bless your church, not just this morning, but especially this morning, that God, you would strengthen your church each and every day, but especially this morning as we sit and we gather together under your banner to honor your name. God, I thank you for your Bible, and I pray that you would teach us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. All right. As our nation is coming out of uh, the tightness of quarantine, and as our church is starting to gather together together a little more um, in groups, little bigger groups, uh, we get to look at this text this morning. Last week, we, we, Seth taught us about the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. This is coming right after that event. There's very little time. It's the same night. And we are told that they led Jesus to the high priest. So we're going to look at this as we see this, this night continue on. We're going to look at this in three little pieces. The first, we're going to see the trial of the God-man. And that's going to be verse 53 through 61, the first part of verse 61, except for verse 54. So the trial of the God-man and then the humanity of the God-man, which is verse 61, the second half through 64. And then the application is the disdain for the God-man. And that is verse 65 and 54. So if you need an outline, that's where we're going. So. All in the same night, Jesus has been betrayed, he's been arrested, he's healed the servant of the high priest, he's then led to the high priest. That's where we pick up, and the, we pick up with the Sanhedrin, the chief priest, the high priest, the scribes who would be a part of that, the Levites who would be a part of that, they've already 
had a plan to gather up. This was a this was a thought out plan that they were going to arrest Jesus this night. They had a betrayer. They knew that they were going to get him, and they were set up to put him on trial. This evening, this night, this time that Jesus goes on trial is a really interesting um, look at law and uh, precedents and. Um, obeying the law or even the leaders following the law. And you can really spend a lot of time breaking that down. There's just a few points that we'll kind of go through as we look at this trial. Um, But I'm not a lawyer. I don't know law like incredibly well. So I'm going to leave it. If you have an interest in law and you want to see how this all plays out, you should really study this passage and and see how it plays into laws. Um, But we're going to pull out a few things. So they let him the, the trial begins. All of the scribes, the chief priests, the high priests, they're all there. They bring him together. And here is God in human flesh on trial. The oxymoron of that God on trial is, is in this text. He's there and there are men looking at him to see if he's guilty of something. The ways that this trial are breaking the law um, is is extensive. If you take the Talmud, which is the Jewish laws that protect the Torah, um, very much like we have our laws that kind of, that are made to protect or to go with the Constitution, they have laws that are based off of the Torah. So that's the Talmud. Um, there were things in the Talmud like laws that say you can't try someone between the evening and the morning sacrifice. So you can't put someone on trial at night. That was what they're saying. So here they have a trial at night. They said that you can't have a pre-trial examination. Well, John tells us that they first led Jesus to Annas, the high priest's father-in-law. Caiaphas is high priest this year, Uh, but they first led him to Annas. So there was a pre-trial examination. There was a breaking of their law. Um, they couldn't convene on a day between or before a holy day. They couldn't come together before a Sabbath to put someone on trial for that. They couldn't bring the, the execution of a prisoner on the same day that they try the prisoner. There's all these things, these little pieces where they're saying, we have this law, but we're going to break this law because we think it's more important today. There's all of this shadiness going on. So they bring him to Caiaphas. They bring him to trial. They bring him to the Sanhedrin. Caiaphas is that high priest who prophesied earlier that it's expedient for one man to die, then the whole nation should perish. So that's where we're at. We're, they're standing before this man who has proclaimed that. It's said that he was prophesying that so that people knew that. And they start to question him. They start to bring testimony against him but their testimonies don't agree and this is where in Jewish custom they had to have two agreeing witnesses God laid out how trials are supposed to go Leviticus um, uh, I forgot the I didn't write the Leviticus one I got the Deuteronomy 19 15 through 21 Um, they have to have two witnesses that agree they have to have an agreement so much that it's not like, oh yeah, that's the same situation, but different words. They had to be specific and agreeing. 
Here, we are told that they have witnesses that are talking about the same things, but they don't agree. And it even records that they found nothing wrong with him. This trial, they're putting God on trial. There's nothing wrong with him. They can't come up with anything worthy to find him guilty on. So they bring in false witnesses. And these false witnesses did not agree. Some stood up, said, we've heard him say, I will destroy this temple. Mark says, they said, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. Matthew records this differently. Matthew records other people's arguments and how their words did not agree. But we're told specifically that Jesus said, you destroy the temple and I will raise it up. So they didn't even have their, like the context of what they're trying to put Jesus on trial for. They didn't even have it together. They didn't even understand it. All that to say, here they take this man, this man who has done so much good, they put him on trial and they can't get anything to stick. Church, Jesus is the sinless one. He is the one that practiced righteousness so well that he was sinless. We as Christians are told to practice righteousness, 1 John says. We, we aim to practice righteousness with the understanding that we don't do it perfectly, but we try. We try to do it well. We try to practice righteousness rather than practicing sinfulness or lawlessness. A mark of a Christian is one who follows our Lord Jesus in practicing righteousness so that things just don't stick. They couldn't get anything on him. They, then the high priest turns to Jesus. There's all of these testimonies getting brought out. He turns to Jesus and says, do you have nothing to say to this? Are you not going to make a defense for yourself? Jesus doesn't say anything. Mark says here in verse 61, he remained silent and made no answer. It is false accusation after false accusation after terrible witnesses And Jesus made no answer. They're seeking to put him to death. Yet the witnesses are bearing false witness. In the Jewish law, those false witnesses would receive the punishment of who they couldn't convict. So they were actually putting themselves in danger of death. But they couldn't get and they couldn't get anything to stick on Jesus. Jesus, though, remains silent. He could have done something. Jesus could have walked through the crowd like he did in Nazareth when he opened up the scroll of Isaiah and said, today the scripture is being fulfilled and they take him out of Nazareth to the top of a cliff and they're going to push him over. And it says that Jesus just turned and walked through them. He could have done that. He could have, Matthew records, called 10,000 angels and just wiped him out. He could have used his perfect knowledge of 
the law, the Old Testament, the Jewish law. He could have just said, this is exactly what's going on and you guys are wrong and the trial would have been over. He could have defended himself, but he didn't. He remained silent. He chose to let the illegal, unintelligent, greedy, hateful, malicious, hypocritical, devilish, outlandish debacle of a trial proceed against him. Why? Why would God allow this to happen? Because Jesus trusted his father. And I think that's one thing for us to look at. We can see, as we see things come against Christians, as we see things come against the church, there are laws and precedences that we can claim, but ultimately we need to trust our Heavenly Father. Jesus in the garden had prayed that this wouldn't happen, but yet he said, not my will, but your will be done. And he came to a peace in trusting God the Father's plan that this trial had to continue. Jesus remained silent. And Peter, who is sitting outside in the courtyard while this trial goes on, gives us something about when we're under trial in 1 Peter chapter 2. Starting in verse 18, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. That is what Peter witnessed this evening. That's what Peter remembers about Jesus and his trial that Jesus remained silent. He did not fight back. He committed himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus is our example of how to suffer well, how to be peaceful and endure with confidence what God is sovereignly allowing in our lives. There are times we can fight, but He gives us a very good silent treatment to do here. I'm reading the Pilgrim's Progress with my sons right now. And I think the Pilgrim's Progress has a, has a scene or a, uh, has a section that really illustrates this well for us in that Christian and faithful are walking on the road or walking on the path And they meet evangelist again. And evangelist tells them, hey, you're going to go into the city of vanity where there's a big fair. And one of you is going to die there. 
The one who dies, he actually has the better case because he's going straight to heaven, uh, evangelist tells him. And then the other, they have to endure the road, the rest of the way to the celestial kingdom. So these two, Christian and faithful, enter into the town of Vanity where all these things are taking place. There's this giant fair. The whole city is a year-long fair. People are trying to sell the world's goods. They're trying to get faithful and Christian to take of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. They're trying to get them. And Christian and faithful are plugging their ears and they're speaking out saying, no, I'm not going to look. I'm not even going to commit myself to see what you're selling. And they get arrested. And they get put in a cage, it says. And then while they're in the cage, they're being peaceable and they're being quiet. John Bunyan says they're being peaceful and quiet in their persecution. They're getting beat. They're getting put on trial, but they remain quiet and peaceable. When the trial goes on, faithful stands and makes his defense and is then killed. The, the character faithful is martyred in the town of vanity. And then Christian is released. And as Christian leaves, this other man comes up to him out of the city whose name is Hopeful. And they start having this dialogue. And Hopeful says, it's because of how you suffered peaceably and quietly that many in our town have become Pilgrims as well. And then hopeful and Christian start the pilgrimage again out of the town of vanity together. Now that's a good example. That's a good picture. But I've listened to, I haven't read it yet. I've listened to the Pilgrim's Progress, the second part, which is actually Christian's wife, Christiana, who's not following or not going along with him in the first book. She starts this pilgrimage too. And she comes to the town of vanity But when she gets there, the fair is gone. And there's actually, there's Christians all over the town of Vanity. And her and her children have a great time in fellowship together in the town of Vanity. Because of the testimony of Christian and faithful. And how that made such an impact that the whole town was turned upside down. And people were saved out of it. So Jesus here gives us the example. John Bunyan picks it up and says, this is what it looks like. This is what it does. Because Jesus was silent. He was put on trial. And we actually have salvation because he did not fight back. Jesus was silent. We have an example to follow when we are persecuted, when we are treated shamefully, when we have false accusations come against us. So I'm going to stop that. That is the kind of the end of what we're going to look at is really the trial. There comes this great question next. So we're looking at the humanity of the God man. And the high priest, verse 61, stands up, says he remained silent. Jesus made no answer. He asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed now, there's a word in there. It says, again, this is my, my personal conviction. Um, I think that they asked him this question multiple times in the trial because other gospels record Jesus's response a little bit differently. He'll, he responded like, you say that I am. And he puts it out there back to him like, well, what do you think? But here Mark records, again, the high priest asked him, 
Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Mark records it very emphatically. Jesus says, I am. He makes this definitive claim to deity. It is a statement of fact that Jesus says. He says, I am the Christ, the son of blessed. He is God in the flesh. But they don't like it. They don't like it because Jesus is standing here as a man. Has anybody ever met a childhood hero? Matthew, have you ever met a childhood hero? Somebody you looked up to and went, man, I love that guy. He's on TV. And then you actually meet him. Have you ever had that? Gideon, have you ever met someone like a childhood hero? When I was in middle school, I got to go to Reno for a wrestling tournament. And it was this huge tournament. Um, and in my bracket was the nature boy, Ric Flair's son. He was in the same weight class as me, the same age group. The Ric Flair was the leader of the WCW, the world championship wrestling on TV. He dressed up really flamboyantly. And I really liked wrestling as a kid. It was fun to watch. Ric Flair was kind of like a childhood hero. He was the leader of the WCW. They fought against the WWF. Um, For those that are under 20, that's like the precursor to WWE and Raw and all that stuff. Um, So the nature boy, Ric Flair, his son was in my bracket. And I was sitting in the the bleachers waiting to wrestle. And here goes Ric Flair across in front of me. And I'm like, whoa, it's Ric Flair. And I got my camera out and my coach stood next to him. And I got a picture of Ric Flair. I saw him in person. And I remember looking back on that going, He's actually shorter than I thought he was. And he's actually not that impressive when he's not standing up in a, in a big ring and um, beating people up fake, you know, fakely beating people up. He wasn't that impressive. And I had this great letdown of like, ah, it's Ric Flair. And he wasn't that cool. And his son got beat by a girl in the wrestling tournament. And my thought was like, I really don't want to wrestle that girl. But Ric Flair really isn't that cool. <laughs> Like, there was all these things like, ah, this is a giant letdown. That's kind of a picture of what's happening here with Jesus. Here is the Messiah. Here is God in the flesh. And everybody's going, he looks like every other guy. What's different with this guy? Yeah, he's doing miracles. He's got all these different things. but, But he's just a man. And his brothers didn't even believe him, that he was God. They lived with him his whole life. His townspeople didn't believe him. He was just the carpenter's son or the carpenter. So there's this great, if you would, by the Sanhedrin, letdown of who the Messiah is. And I think the beautiful thing about this is that Jesus was a man just like he had all of the troubles just like we do in life. He's getting false accusations. He's having emotional pain. He's having physical pain. He got tired. He got hungry. All of these things that we deal with as people, God has dealt with as well. Jesus, to them, was a letdown. Jesus, to us, is salvation. Jesus, to us, is beautiful. It is wonderful that God has come and suffered for us, suffered with us. He is a compassionate 
high priest. And we'll, we'll touch on the high priest thing here in a minute. Jesus says, I am. I am God. I am the Messiah. I am the one you guys have been looking for and praying for and wanting. And he says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus tells the Sanhedrin that's, that's trying to kill him. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. I heard a really, or saw a really fun um, picture this, this last week of a lineup of people. And at the front of the line, people are going up to heaven. They're, the line's flat and then phew, there's, there's this lineup of people going up. And the, the idea of it, um, and I looked this up, one person dies every 1.8 seconds in, in the world. One person's dying every, almost every two seconds. And the, the caption was, we're all in a line. And we don't know how close we are to the front of that line. But I like how John Piper tells us, like, we are immortal as Christians, as humans. We're immortal until the day that our mortality is made immortal, immortal. So we can, like, come in contact with the coronavirus. Um, and God can say, you know what, it's not your time. And we're not even, we won't die from it. Or it could be our time. It could be we got to the front of the line. We don't know how that is. But we're immortal until the day that God says, it's time for you to come meet me. And we, we hit the front of the line. It was a really fun picture for me to ponder on this week. And as I thought of that, um, the passage in Revelation 19, um, Jesus said, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And Jesus reveals himself to John the Revelator, and John records that he saw the heavens open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on the horse was named Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And he says, his eyes were like a flame of fire, on his head were many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And his robe was dipped in blood. He's clothed in a robe dipped with blood. And the name by which he is known is the word of God. And the armies of heaven were following after him. John sees this scene, the the clouds of heaven opening up and the son of man coming in the clouds. And he says, the armies of heaven were following after him. And they were arrayed in fine linen. They were on white horses coming too. And he says, the the son of man on the white horse that's coming, he will tread out the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty, and he will rule the nations with the sword that's coming out of his mouth. He will strike down the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. And the name that is on his thigh and on his robe is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. As I was looking at this passage, Jesus is saying, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power coming in the clouds of heaven. This is what Jesus is talking about. The day he comes back or the day we come to meet him for those who love the Lord Jesus. That is a most glorious day. 
That is a day we can look forward to. Stephen, when he was martyred, he saw Jesus stand up to welcome him in. But for those who refuse the Son of Man, for those who hate the Son of Man, for those who reject the Christ, this is the most dreadful of days. When Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven. I hope and pray that as a church, that as individuals, as families, we are encouraging one another to seek the Son of Man while he can be found on this side of eternity, to seek him, to encourage a full, wholehearted devotion to him so that when we see him, it is glorious, not dreadful. The high priest hears this and he tears his clothes. He tears his clothes much like Saul when Samuel said, I'm taking the, God is taking the kingdom away from you. Saul fell down and grabbed the hem of his, his robe and it tore. And Samuel turns around and looks at Saul and says, just like that, the kingdom is being torn from you. Here, the high priest who's never, was never supposed to tear his robes. He tears his robes. If Saul and Samuel was symbolic of the kingdom being torn from Saul, so much more is the high priesthood here being torn from the Levites, from the descendants of Aaron, and being given to another. Jesus is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is the one who has endured just like we have and is a compassionate and faithful high priest. He did not have to offer sacrifices for his sins. He offered himself for our sins. And if you can picture the high priest standing there tearing his robes and at that moment, the priestly office being transferred onto this man they're about to beat. That's what's taking place. The priesthood is being fulfilled and taken over by Christ as he is going into the sacrifice for sin. The priesthood is torn away from people, from the, from the Levitical priesthood, and given to an everlasting priesthood. This very same day, the temple would be, the, the curtain in the temple would be torn apart, symbolically showing our entrance into God through the death of Christ. This is what's taking place on this evening that we're, this night that we're reading about. And they all stand up and they say, what do you decide? The high priest yells out blasphemy and they all condemn him as deserving death. They all condemn him as deserving death. Now this, this goes back to Leviticus 24 where um, the precedence for blasphemy being a capital punishment goes back to when the son of an Israelite woman, the son of an Egyptian, starts fighting with another Israelite near the camp or in the camp of the Israelites. And the, the half Egyptian, half Israelite guy curses the name of God, uses God's name as a swear word. And everybody's like, whoa, <laughs> what do we do now, God? And God says, stone him. There was a, it was a huge, like serious precedent set in Leviticus 24. That is then here what's being 
invoked when they look at this man who says, I am God. And they're like, he's not just, they think he's not just saying like God's name in vain. He's like claiming to be God. And they say, we are going for death. We are condemning him worthy of death. They think this is sin, but he's the only one it's not sin for. So the last thing here, as we start to wind up or wind down, um, they began to spit on him. They began to cover it, or then they covered his face and they began to strike him and say to him, prophesy, like, who is it that hit you? Your face is covered. And the guards received him with blows. They, they don't like what Jesus has said. They don't like it. I hope I've gotten that across. They don't like who Jesus is and what he's saying he is. They don't like it so much. They're wanting to kill him. There is a disdain for the body of Christ in this passage. They hate the humanity, the body of Christ. They hate God in the flesh. Jesus when he was taken into the high priest's house, has one of his disciples following him into the courtyard. And Peter is warming himself at the enemy's fire, sitting next to the co-workers of the man that he cut the ear off of. Could you imagine the conversation kind of going around that fire? Like, man, did you see the guy that got his ear cut off? Like, Peter's like, I didn't see a thing. You know, um, Peter is there, but he's cold. Peter is cold. And here, the leaders have a disdain, a hatred for the body of Christ. Jesus told his disciples in the garden this very night to watch and pray that they might not enter into temptation. He said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. When the disciples were watching Jesus's ministry and they go, wow, He really has a power in prayer. They said, teach us to pray. And part of the Lord's prayer that he taught them was that we would not be led into temptation, but delivered from evil. The disciples were in a school where they should have been learning prayer and the power of prayer. But here in verse 54, Peter is cold. I don't know about the rest of the church. I don't think I'm alone in this. But in this season of separation, it's hard to be zealous for God. It's hard to feel on fire. It's it's a great temptation for me to be cold, to just, oh, I'm just going to, I'm going to sit under the, the rulers and authorities of this state and I'm just going to kind of do my thing and wait for this to blow over. And uh, that's what I'm tempted to do. It's really hard for me to want to battle in prayer, to want to go out and seek people to share with because they're all wearing their masks and they're standing 10 feet away. And if I try to step a little closer, they step away. And it's, it's hard. It's hard to, to be hot or on fire for the Lord. But Jesus had told them to pray. And now the physical body of Christ on trial is being 
beaten and spit upon and cursed upon. And up until Thursday night, my application was going to be how our governmental leaders have not said the church is essential. But then Friday morning, our nation's leader stood up and said the church is essential. And I watched it last night. And the cool thing, he didn't just say like the church is essential, but he said the church is essential so they can gather and to pray. That's what Trump said. And you can say, well, okay, Trump's like just getting political. But no, the leader of the nation that we live in stood up in front of the nation and said the church is essential so they can gather to pray. Jesus had told his people to pray. General Patton, I learned this this week too, General Patton, before the Battle of the Bulge, which was the Germany's last like great push on the Western Front, addressed his chaplain to write a prayer. So they were in a city, they didn't have reinforcements, it was raining, there was cloud cover, the planes couldn't take off and get them reinforcements. Patton comes to the chaplain and says, I need you to write a prayer that God would help us. So the chaplain sits down and writes out this prayer. He says, Almighty and most merciful Father, we humbly beseech thee of thy great goodness to restrain these immoderate rains with which we have to contend. Grant us fair weather for battle. Graciously hearken to us as soldiers who call upon thee that armed with thy power we may advance from victory to victory and crush the oppression and wickedness of our enemies and establish thy justice among men and nations. That's what this chaplain writes out for General Patton. And then they copy it and they give it to every man in their army, in, this, in, this, uh, in the third army. So they all pray. The, this army prays and they pray this specific prayer. And the next morning, the rain stopped, the clouds cleared, the airplanes were able to take off, they delivered the supplies, and General Patton was able to stop the Nazi advance in the Battle of the Bulge, effectively ending Germany's Western Front like offensive. Like that was the end. You could say that was like the beginning of the end for the Germans. Because General Patton stood up and said, We need to pray to God. I fully have a personal conviction that the most powerful thing that the church could ever do is to pray. We trust in Jesus, and I believe the most powerful thing we could ever do is to pray. The church is the most powerful organization on earth. We have the Spirit of God living in us, and God is able to do anything. And we have this opportunity, this ability to pray. As I was thinking about Peter warming himself by an enemy's fire because he was cold, my mind and my study went to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and how they were told to bow down and pray and worship a golden image of Nebuchadnezzar's. And they said, we're not going to do it. And they were so on fire, they were thrown into the fire and they weren't hurt, right? You remember that story? Like, these men were on fire, but they weren't hurt by the fire of the enemy. So then I thought about the rest of the book of Daniel, how Daniel experienced the world change over, like the world scene just keep rolling over. He was taken from Jerusalem. He goes under a pagan king. 
And that pagan king has a bad dream and says, I want you to tell me my dream and the interpretation. And he goes, hold on, tell him I got the answer. And he and his friends go and they pray. And God gives them the answer in prayer. Daniel then goes to the king and says, this is your dream. Nebuchadnezzar exalts Daniel. And then this scene with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego happens at some time after that. And then Nebuchadnezzar is humbled until he looks up and he recognizes God as God. And then he writes a passage of scripture about how great God is. So because of prayer, the people of God are put into a position where they have influence on this world leader. So then Nebuchadnezzar dies, Balthazar, Balthazar rises. I think it was his grandson. And Balthazar is having a party, and they see the hand of God right, meaning, meaning, tekel, you farson on the wall. And they're like, what's this mean? And they call for the man of God. There are men of God in the kingdom, and they call Daniel in, and he interprets it. You've been weighed, you've been tried this very night. It's being taken from you. So then, the, the Babylonians are wiped out, and here come the Persians, right? And the Persians exalt Cyrus. Uh, not Cyrus, Darius, exalts um, Daniel. And the other people in Darius's court don't like Daniel, and they know Daniel always prays. And the thing we can get him on is we can get Daniel on prayer. We can get him on prayer. So only, so they make the law, they get the law pushed through. You can only pray to Darius, the leader, right? And then Daniel breaks that, of course, because he's going to pray to God. And Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den, But Darius can't sleep. All night, he's worried about Daniel. He gets up in the morning. He runs down to the lion's den. He looks and he says, Daniel, has your God saved you? And Daniel's like, yeah, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. And they pull Daniel out. And they throw those bad co-workers of Daniel into the lion's den. And they're dead before they hit the floor. Right? Then Darius, it says, stands up and exalts the name of the God of Daniel. He says, this God is the true God. Church, we have, I believe, a wonderful opportunity right now. The nation, the leader of our nation is saying, church, pray. I believe the church, we should pray. We should pray on our knees. We should pray on our faces. We should be lying in our bed at night when we wake up and we should pray. We should be taking the opportunity to do major battle in the spirit. So I'm going to end with Ephesians 6 here, where we learn about our spiritual armor. Ephesians 6, we are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We put on the armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying 
at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And then Paul says, and in the opening of his mouth, that he might be able to proclaim. But I'm going to say that for us. And in the opening of our mouths, to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which we are ambassadors. Church, I believe as we look at the the trial of Jesus and the coldness of Peter and the disdain for the body of Christ and this proclamation from our nation's leader to gather and to pray, I think we should pray. And it has been my prayer for the church of God in Hood River or this valley to be praying and praying at all times. I want to encourage the church to go for walks as a family and pray for people as you're walking down the street. If you pass by your neighbor's house, pray for them. Or if you know your new neighbors and they have these hurts, pray for them. And when they come out, realize it's a divine appointment. You can say, I was just praying for you. What can I pray for you about? Use those shoes with the readiness of the gospel and walk down the street and pray for your neighbors and pray that spiritual strongholds in this community will be torn down, that we will have opportunity to speak the mysteries of the gospel of God to our neighbors. I encourage the church to pray this week, not just for those that we live by, but for each other. Uh, Think of it when we gather together in this building and, and families usually sit in pretty routine places. Go around the church in your mind and pray for the people as you would be like walking or looking around the church. Like pray, the Stasacs always sit there and pray for the Stasacs and go down the line of, of, those, of their kids and pray for, well, the Shrivers bounce around. So you'd have to kind of picture where they're at, but pray for the Shrivers and pray for them and then pray for the Bronsons and pray for... Everyone, go through the church. Maybe it's other Christians that you know in other churches. Pray for them. Pray for the saints making supplication with all, for all the saints. Church, we have a wonderful opportunity. Let us use this opportunity, this short time we have, with one of the most powerful things on the, on the earth, which is the Spirit of God within us. Let's ask him to bless and ask him to work. Amen? I'm going to pray and we'll close out. Father, um, it is through your son who is seated at your right hand, who has made uh, atonement for our sins. It is by your spirit that lives within us, God, that we are able to pray to you. God, we ask that you would bless your church this week, this very day, but this week and this coming month, that you would bless your church, that you would strengthen families, that you would use families to share the gospel with neighbors, to use families to be walking out this life, tearing down strongholds, God, tearing down the spiritual forces of evil, the gates of hell cannot prevail against your church, Lord. And I pray 
that your church would be taking the opportunity to battle hard in the spirit, to be on fire for you, Lord. I thank you for this example we have in Christ that we can be silent. We don't have to defend ourselves because you, God, are the one who defends us. You are the one who judges all things justly. You are the one who said, vengeance is mine. We can trust you. And I pray that you would work mightily through your church to the praise of the name of the word of God, our King of kings and our Lord of lords. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.